Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 16, verses 7 through 11. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful ones see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Our New Testament reading for today is our text for the sermon, for the message as well, and it's from Romans chapter 8. I've been spending time in the book of Romans this year and have been amazed all over again at the word of strength and encouragement for the living of our days. So we're in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And if you'd like to read along in your pew Bible, that's on page 158 in the New Testament part of your Bible. Let's open our ears to God's word for us today. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us or who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? That's us. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation has any power to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's bow in prayer about this text. Lord God, we trust that a long time ago now, your Holy Spirit came and inspired the Apostle to hear your very word. And to write it down for the benefit of your church. Lord, we pray that in the same way you would come today by your Holy Spirit. Stir in us. Open our hearts that we might be able to receive your word as never before. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 
We've just gotten through an amazing week. It's been a week of celebration and a week of great joy in the life of our church here. We've welcomed our new pastor, Scott. We've been a part of exhilarating worship, the wonderful music. We've had our family celebrations at Christmas, too. And as I look at the week and try to kind of get tabs and take stock of what the week has meant, it seems to me that amidst all the words about Christmas and all the flurry about Christmas in our culture, that hope is a big part of it. Hope is a part of Christmas. In fact, one of the candles that we light represents hope. It's the prophecy candle, the first candle of the Advent season. And now as we're at the first Sunday after Easter, and or excuse me, after Christmas, <laughs> I'm looking ahead. <laughs> and looking at the new year, it seems to me a good thing to do to take stock, to say what is this hope that we share as Christians? Is it realistic to hope in a troubled and uncertain world? I looked at the column by Dave Berry, the humorist, the columnist that was in the Seattle Times this morning. And Dave Berry says that the one word he would use to describe our whole year is wary. And he picks up on the phrase from Mad Magazine that says, what me worry? And he says, what me wary? But he says, wariness describes the state that we're in, in this uncertain world. I don't know what you're hoping for. This season, maybe you were hoping for certain presents for Christmas. Maybe you were hoping for a certain kind of family time at Christmas. And maybe those hopes came true and maybe they didn't. But what are you hoping for in this season as you contemplate the new year? Is it realistic to hope? I believe that the apostle brings a strong word that encourages us to hope in the kind of hope that really lasts. The kind of hope that makes sense. If we're going to have that kind of hope, we need to look to, to Jesus at Christmas to understand that He came in that manger in Bethlehem and to understand why He came to that manger in Bethlehem. And if we do that, the Lord is going to give us a hope that lasts. So I'd like to make just a few observations about the text this morning and to lift up four points where it seems to me if we hold on to this, we'll hold on to a hope that has lasting power. Even in the midst of troubles and uncertainty in the world. The first is this real hope comes from knowing God's purpose for us. Real hope comes from knowing God's purpose for us. As you look to the manger and see the baby, Jesus, it's to know that he came into the world for a purpose. Not just to stay in the manger. Not to stay a baby. He came to be a deliverer, a savior. Unto you this day is born a savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus came for a purpose, and his purpose can be said in, I think, two lines, very simply. Number one, he came to save us, to bring us into a relationship with God. He came to be our Savior. 
He came to free us from our sins. He came to open up the doors for us to heaven so that we have a future and a hope. The first thing is he came to save us. Listen to the, to the language that Paul uses earlier in this passage. He said, therefore, those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also sanctified. Listen to these big theological words. They're pregnant with meaning. From justify. That is, he makes us just as if I'd never sinned in his own eyes. He justifies. Not only that, but he sanctifies. That is, he makes us holy through our journey of life. He increases his presence in us until we more fully grow to be like Jesus. And thirdly, he glorifies. That is, that's his destination for us. We're on a journey to heaven. He doesn't leave us where we are. He moves us from justification through sanctification and all the way to the goal of life. That is glorification where we share with him and his glory in heaven. So he is a savior. He comes to save us from our sins. But not only that, he comes to transform us to make us look like Jesus. Therefore, whom God has predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans is one of the most famous and beloved passages of the whole Bible. The passage is powerful and it opens up this way in chapter 8, verse 1. It begins this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The book opens, there's no condemnation for you if you trust in Jesus. And the book ends this way, or the chapter rather, nothing in all of creation has any power to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What amazing book ends. It opens up, there is no condemnation for you. And the chapter ends, nothing can separate you. No condemnation. Nothing can separate you. Well, that's amazing to me. Because in a sense, this chapter, this section, sums up everything that the Apostle is teaching through the book of Romans. Chapter 1, Paul sets forth the possibility of salvation he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. How many can it save? All. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So chapter one is about the possibility of salvation. Chapters 2 and 3 are about the need of salvation. Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not only is there the possibility of salvation, but Paul says there's the need. And that need is profound and it goes to the root. Chapters 3 to 7 talk about the fulfillment 
of salvation. The fulfillment of salvation. It's how God accomplishes this in Christ, the one who has come in the manger. He says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. God's salvation for men and women, for boys and girls. And now chapter 8 talks about, from this movement that he makes, from the possibility of salvation to the need of salvation to the fulfillment of salvation and now to the security or the guarantee of salvation if God is for us who can be against us by the way that's Paul's rhetorical device that little word if is his way of saying since God's for us who can be against us what's his answer expected to be He expects his audience to say, well, I guess nobody, nobody at all. And then Paul answers his own question. Nothing in all of creation has any power to separate us from the love of God in Christ. So the first thing to note this morning is that real hope comes from knowing God's purpose in us. And number two is that nobody can undo God's purpose in us. Nobody? That's right. Paul says nobody. Nobody at all has any power. God will not undo his purpose for us. Isn't that good news? Isn't that reason for hope in the future as we stand at the cusp of a new year? That God himself is not going to say, oh, well, I didn't know you were going to keep on sinning. I'm sorry, but my salvation can't count for you anymore. It's just like in Pastor Rich's prayer of confession in which he led us this morning. That God's grace covers all of our past sins. It redeems us from the future. It covers us in the present. All of it covered, finished. So God himself is not going to undo his salvation for us. But secondly, other people cannot undo God's purpose for us. Other people. You see, I think there are people in this world that would lead us astray from Christ. There are the false teachers. There are false promises in our culture. There are the enemies that surround us. And yet, none of these can undo God's great purpose in us. The psalmist writes it this way. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Who shall I be afraid of? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, they shall stumble and fall. Even though an army camp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. This is the promise that we have in God. Other people have no power to separate us. Just this week, the second movie of The Lord of the Rings came out. And I don't know how many of you saw that. In fact, I'm tempted to ask, are there any here who saw The Two Towers? I commend you for that, by the way. So feel free to raise your hand. It's a powerful movie. The Two Towers represents all of the armies of Isengard and of Mordor that come and attack the world of men in Middle-earth. 
It amazes me how Sam is always a person of encouragement. I think he has the spiritual gift of encouragement, this little hobbit. And he follows Frodo wherever Frodo goes. And when Frodo is tempted to despair as they stand right on the verge of Mordor, he says, well, there's always hope, Mr. Frodo. Even though the enemies of darkness encamp against us, there is hope. They have no power to separate us from God's purpose for us. So God himself won't undo his purpose. Other people have no power to undo his purpose. But you know what? We can't undo God's purpose for us either. Not by our own failure. Not by our own sin. We cannot cause God to undo his purpose for us. That's the confidence of Scripture. I thought of several passages that affirm this. Paul says to Timothy, I know the one in whom I put my trust, and I'm sure that he's able to guard until that day what I've entrusted to him. He says to the Philippians, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. That is when he comes again. Jude, the brother of our Lord, he writes to the church, God is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. Our Lord himself said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Romans 8.28, right before our passage for this morning. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. All things. Nobody who belongs to Him gets lost along the way. Isn't that good news? Isn't that reason for strong hope? We're not just hanging on by our fingernails. You see, it's not our work at all. It's God's work to hold on to you once you've placed your trust in him. This is what our forebears in the evangelical faith knew as the perseverance of the saints. The saints referring to all of God's people, those whom he is making holy. Once God gets a hold of you, he holds on to you. Well, the third thing is this. Our judge is for us. Our judge is for us. You see, no one has the right to condemn us except Jesus himself. Paul says, who is in a position to condemn? Only Jesus. And yet, he says, he is the one who died for us. He rose for us. He reigns in power for us. Indeed, he intercedes. He prays for us. Did you know that our Lord prays for you before the Father? Those four mighty works of Jesus. He died, he was raised, he reigns, and he prays. And all of those are for you. On your behalf, our judge is for us. In the 1500s, Christians, evangelical believers, suffered greatly for the faith. They were imprisoned and many of them put to death in the great struggle for reformation. In Germany, there were two young men, a pastor and a theologian, still in their 20s. 
And they were commissioned to try to write an articulation to explain what the Christian faith was all about. They wrote the thing that became known as the Heidelberg Catechism. It has 129 questions and answers about the Christian faith. And I think question 52 helps us on this point. The question goes like this. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Now, have you ever thought about that? (laughs) The fact that Jesus will come back one day to judge the living and the dead, that that's supposed to be a comfort to you. And here's the response. In all of my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very same one who's already stood trial in my place before God. And so has removed the whole curse from me. How much of the curse? All of it. The whole curse. Have you ever thought about that? That when Jesus stood before Pilate in trial, he was in trial before God as well. Standing trial in your place, in my place, for the removal of our sins. He's already stood trial in our place. We can trust him. We don't need to fear him. No pressures can overcome us. Nothing from the outside, nothing from the inside. The last thing is this. Hope is stronger than our troubles. You see, Paul is pointing to a realistic hope. He's not saying there aren't going to be troubles. He doesn't promise that it's always going to be smooth sailing in the Christian life. Our Lord said, just as the world has hated me, so the world will hate you. He calls us to pick up the cross and to follow him. So there will be times of trouble. But you know what? This is a hope that transcends, it overcomes even the trouble. It's a realistic hope. Paul doesn't pretend that the trouble won't come. Only that it won't overcome you. That's Paul's promise. Did you catch that line in there about all the things that might threaten to divide us from Christ? One of them is the sword. And that's a picture of persecution. Paul knew well what that was about. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, says Jesus. Therefore, the world hates you. But it's more than just scraping by. Nothing can separate us. A story that my daughter, Celia, who is nine, and I have come to love is the story of Greyfriars Bobby. Greyfriars Bobby was a Skye Terrier who lived in Scotland in Edinburgh. And he had an owner who was very a very old but a very kind shepherd. And when the owner died, this little dog was so faithful that he refused to be sent to another home and the dog wouldn't leave his graveside. The dog went to that graveside And the caretaker of the grave or of the churchyard at Greyfriars tried to chase him away and kick him out. He said, you silly little dog, what are you doing? There's no dogs allowed in the graveyard or in the churchyard. So he kicked him out. But Greyfriars Bobby always found a way to sneak back in and he would go to sleep on his owner's tomb. And that's where he stayed. Well, a kindly neighborhood restaurant or the... The owner of it, a restaurant in the inn, 
took care of him and he would set a bowl of food out for him and put out water. The little children in the neighborhood and the tenement came to adopt Bobby and they loved him. They'd always be looking out for him. Well, Bobby went to sleep on that grave every single night for 14 years. They were never able to kick him out of the churchyard. And Bobby becomes, for me, a picture of the steadfastness of our Lord's love. That's what our Lord's like. His love hangs in there. His love gives us hope for the future. Because he doesn't give up on us. The Lord says, I have loved you, he says in Jeremiah, with an everlasting love, a forever love. With that kind of love, we have a hope for the future that lasts. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your steadfastness, for your faithfulness, that your love is always reaching out, that your love always hangs in there. Lord, because of that, if we know your purpose for us, your good purpose, we can have hope. So, Lord, thank you. Help us to know that hope, to feel it, and to live in it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.